This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. This video is an installment of our History of Medicine series in which we will be discussing the history of modern medicine with experts from around the globe. There will be no discussion questions during this video. However, if you would like to ask a question or leave a comment, please feel free to do so at any time. Thank you and we hope you enjoy this video. Welcome to Open Pediatrics World Shared Practice Forum. My name is Jim DiNardo. I'm professor of anesthesia at Harvard Medical School and chief of the division of cardiac anesthesia at Children's Hospital Boston. With me today is Dr. Paul Barish. Many of you will recognize uh, Dr. Barish as one of the uh, giants in our field of anesthesia. Dr. Barish is currently Professor Emeritus of Anesthesiology at Yale Medical School and has served previously as Chair of the Department of Anesthesiology as well as the Associate Dean of Clinical Affairs. Many of you um, know Dr. Barish through his work, uh, Clinical Anesthesia, which is a series of textbooks and electronic media, which is really uh, the go-to text for uh, anesthesia education. He has more than 300 contributions to the literature in, form, in the form of original scientific publications, reviews, book chapters, and abstracts. Welcome, Paul. Thanks, Jim. So um, we have, we're lucky enough to have um, Dr. Barish with us here today. I think what I'd like to do is start um, with discussing uh, your recently published article, The 20 Game Changers in Anesthesia. Well, that's a good place to start, Jim. Uh, I'm not going to go through the whole list because some of it isn't pertinent to Children's Hospital purview. Uh, but I would like to pick two number seven and eight on the list, which have relevance here, particularly since one of the papers was authored from this institution, and they both have to do with pain. So number eight is Anand and Hickey's article on the perception of neonatal pain and its implications for clinical practice. This was truly a game changer because prior to that article, Many people felt that you did not really have to anesthetize neonates, particularly for critical operations, or use very, very light levels of anesthesia uh, for these surgical procedures. Anand and Hickey's article changed all that. It showed us the importance of giving anesthesia to neonates and that the effect was multifactorial. So that was article number eight on the list. Connected to that article is article number seven, which was Simpson's use of anesthesia for childbirth. And to set the scene, probably within 500 feet from where we're speaking was the world breakthrough in anesthesia, Morton's demonstration of ether anesthesia in what is now the ether dome. That was in October 1846. Within a few months, in Scotland, Simpson, a renowned obstetrician, used ether for the first time clinically. It should be stated that ether had been or anesthesia had been used 500 years before in Scotland, and it was considered such a heretic move 
that the patient was stoned to death. Uh, Simpson had familiarity with ether, as did a lot of people. There was recreational drug use even in the 19th century, and they had what they called ether frolics. So people were familiar with giving ether in a recreational environment. He wound up having a patient who had major uh, cephalopelvic disproportion and could not deliver her. And he had to give some form of an anesthetic to remove the baby. When that was learned, both the church and the medical establishment came down on him in many ways reminiscent of the debates that we have in this country to this day. So the medical establishment basically said that anesthesia for childbirth was a problem because it did not allow the obstetrician to know where the mother was in her stages of labor. That was easily dispensed with. The more problematic were the church, and the church felt that the use of anesthesia to relieve pain was antithetical to Genesis 3.16, in which God said that women should be punished for Eve's sin and not have any relief of pain during childbirth. Obviously, this was all men saying this. Uh, and basically, what happened was Simpson wrote a number of editorial pieces accompanying that first piece. Uh, it's interesting to note, we think of things very slow in the 1900s, and things are very fast now in communication. I feel that probably his giving the first anesthetic uh, at that point was much faster than we could do at this time. They didn't go through any review boards. They didn't go through any experimental clinical data. He just used it. So as a result, there was probably something like five to six months time course between ether giving in Boston and being given in Scotland. Eventually, Queen Victoria had anesthesia for childbirth, and that settled the whole argument about women having anesthesia for childbirth. So these were two game-changer articles in a pediatric environment, to say. And before leaving this subject, when we wrote the article, we were requested by the editors to supply contender articles for the top game changes that we chose. And the article that would be pertinent to the Hickey and And article, one would be the use of CPAP by George Gregory, which was a landmark article on the use of CPAP for respiratory distress syndrome. That article changed the entire management and survival of preemies and neonates with respiratory distress syndrome. The articles for uh, the Simpson choice, there were two. One was uh, Mendelssohn syndrome, aspiration pneumonia, which most people feel was maybe even more important than Simpson's article, but I felt the relief of pain and the philosophical issues that go with that were so important that it outdistanced Mendelssohn syndrome. The second article was a little bit more controversial, particularly when I delivered this a lecture on this up at Columbia where Virginia Apgar was a professor of anesthesia. And they were, to put it mildly, quite upset with me that I didn't choose Apgar as the alter alternative, letting alone choose Apgar as the article and eliminate Simpson. 
As a matter of fact, they gave me a button that I was ha had to wear saying that this was the Virginia Apgar Society, which they have up at Columbia. The reason we didn't choose Virginia Apgar for that particular contender status was I felt that Simpson's contribution was so revolutionary at the time. The second thing is that we used Virginia Apgar in contender status for another choice. We chose the ASA physical status scoring system as a major contribution. And for that one, the contender we felt was APGAR. Both of them dealt with risk, one with risk in a surgical population of adults, basically, and the other in pediatrics. So that sort of rounds out our issues related to the game changers. Paul, let's talk about um, one of my favorites in the collection you've got here, which is uh, your investigation of the hemodynamic effects of halothane in children using uh, echocardiographic analysis, which in 1978, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the year this was published, was absolutely revolutionary. Nobody had made, had the foresight to combine basic hemodynamic monitoring with echocardiographic analysis to investigate the effects of inhalation anesthetics. Let's talk about that article. Well, that's an excellent starting point. During my cardiac fellowship, and by the way, I was cardiac fellow number one at Yale, I had a lot to do with the pediatric cardiologists. And I was continually learning techniques from them. Uh, I learned the Seldinger te technique from them, catheterization of small kids. And one of the things that I got very interested in was their use of echocardiography, which I felt had great promise in the OR. At that point, we did not have transesophageal echocardiography, so we basically had a transthoracic echocardiography. And what that necessitated was, was using an echocardiographic technician to collect the images because she was very facile at it and actually got the images much quicker than did the attending pediatric cardiologists. So Kathy Taunt was our research echocardiographer technician and she had a very good bedside manner with the kids, which was important, and the mothers, which was even more important. And what we would do basically is bring the kids down to the echo lab on a Friday afternoon. We did the studies on Saturday morning in our tonsillectomy uh, schedule. So the kids would come down to our echo lab. We would just take a preliminary echo just to make sure everything was okay, get everybody's permission, get the kids used to having an echo because part of it was going to be done to wake up in the operating room. And then Saturday morning, the children would receive sedation, come to the operating room into a holding room where we would do the echo study. So basically, we would bring the child into the operating room and then go through a series of control measurements, nitrous oxide, and then go from halothane in half percent steps from zero to two percent two minutes at each step. We had to make a decision at the, at, when we started this study whether we were going to stay at one level of halothane or go in steps that reproduce what happened clinically. And we felt we wanted to reproduce what happened clinically. This is the protocol we used. As you could see, we used cecobarbital and morphine as a pre-med. We took a controlled series of measurements on room air 
then a series on nitrous oxide, and then we went in half percent steps from half percent halothane up to two percent halothane. Then we gave atropine, then succinylcholine, intubated, and then we wound up having an incision made at one percent halothane. So we did the study, and it was basically M-mode echocardiography, which is torture to do all those measurements. So this figure shows a typical control echocardiography image of the left ventricle and shows normal ventricular function. EKG is electrocardiogram, RV is right ventricle, LV is left ventricle, ESD is end systolic dimension, and EDD is end diastolic dimension. And as I said, this just shows a typical M-mode trace of the left ventricle in a normal healthy six-year-old. The next picture shows the effects of halothane 2%, again with the same abbreviations, and you'll note the amount of myocardial depression. The um, left ventricle is not moving as well. There's not as vigorous contraction as you could see. The end systolic and the end diastolic dimension are somewhat larger. When we looked at the data, we were amazed at the amount of depression that the left ventricle underwent during a standard induction of anesthesia in healthy, average age, six-year-old kids. So this shows the uh, effects of uh, the protocol and increasing levels of halothane on blood pressure, pulse rate, and cardiac output. Note that the cardiac output depression is nearly 30%, and that after atropine is given, the cardiac output increases significantly on the result of a heart rate increase. Uh, the uh, blood pressure also increases as a result of the heart rate increase. This figure shows the effects of how increasing levels of halothane on ejection fraction and left ventricular and diastolic volume. Notice the amount of depression of ejection fraction at 2% halothane. This figure shows the effects of increasing levels of halothane on the velocity of circumferential fiber shortening, systolic time intervals, PEP, LVET, and it shows again the significant reduction of more than 30% on the contractility of the left ventricle during a standard anesthesia induction in a six-year-old patient. As a matter of fact, when the pediatric cardiologist saw this, they thought we were throwing the kids into heart failure with each induction. I don't think so. But um, we wound up analyzing that data, and that was the first report of the use of echocardiography in the literature. And I always wondered what was going to happen when someone repeated the study, because they, it was going to be repeated. It just took, it took about 15 years to get the next study. And the data held up, which I was obviously very grateful for. So that study showed a couple of things. One, it showed the amount of myocardial depression that a child has under a standard type of routinely clinically used anesthetic induction. It showed the potential for non-invasive monitoring. And after that, I did a lot of work with non-invasive monitoring, including some stuff we'll even show you with electrocardiography. So that became a very important area of research as a result of me working with the pediatric cardiologists, who are very, very supportive. So, Paul, talk to us a little bit about um, 
the atropine effect on the myocardial depression associated with the halothane induction. Because I remember as a trainee that that was, that was, took on biblical proportions. Everyone knew that you gave atropine when you were doing a halothane induction because it maintained cardiac output. Talk, elaborate on that a little bit. Well, Jim, that, what you're saying is exactly true. That was one of the surprising findings of the study, the effects of atropine on the hemodynamic performance of the left ventricle. So what I think happened is that the increase in heart rate increased the cardiac output on the basis of pulse rate times stroke volume equals cardiac output. But I, we were surprised that it had such a profound effect in a, such a profoundly depressed heart. But that was what exactly the data showed. And it showed also that the effects on contractility were reversed with giving atropine. The atropine was actually given not because of the halothane issue for us. It was given because we were concerned about the bradycardic effects of succinylcholine in this setting. So we wanted to protect against that. Actually, when we set up the protocol, we had originally thought about not using atropine. We wanted to be purists, but we felt nothing can happen during this. This had to be a, an induction we would use in a standard way on healthy six-year-olds. And starting to play with taking the atropine away or not taking it away, we felt was not appropriate to human experimentation. So, Paul, what I'd like to talk about uh, next is um, your article on anesthesia and analgesia about the effect of left-to-right, mixed left-to-right, and right-to-left shunts on inhalation induction in children. This article has been, I don't know how many times it's been cited, probably thousands. It's in every textbook. Every anesthesia resident has learned this. And, I'm, and, I'm, and the methodology here is really interesting. It's based on math. I've done some math modeling stuff myself, so I love this. T talk to us a little bit about how you decided to approach this problem this way. Well, the first thing when we approached it was I wasn't going to be the mathematician, all right? That was not in my field of view. So we have a variety of authors here, each of whom brings something special to the scene. So Guy Tano was the lead author, and he was more of our person on the compartmental model of drug modeling. Perry Miller was our computer expert in modeling. Peter Rothstein actually was a graduate of the Harvard programs, and he was the pediatric anesthesiology representative to the project. So this, as I said, was an outgrowth, starting with the stuff on ventricular function and echocardiography they did. The next thing we were thinking about was looking at what happens with a left-to-right and a right-to-left shunt on the speed of anesthesia induction. And we felt eventually it had to be a computer-driven model. And the guy came up with the model, which was a seven-compartmental model. It used EGA's four compartments, a vessel-rich group, vessel-poor group, a fat group, and a muscle group. And we added to that another two compartments for the right and left ventricle and another compartment for the lungs. So that's how we wound up with our seven compartment model. We then decided we were going to model it on a healthy seven-year-old uh, hemodynamically normal patient. And we did that. And then we started playing around with the shunts. So we would play 
cause a right-to-left shunt, a left-to-right shunt. We would cause large shunts, small shunts. We would then mix the shunts so you'd have predominant left-to-right and add in a little right-to-left and the vice versa. And the other thing we did is we used three different anesthetic agents. We used a insoluble agent, nitrous oxide, an intermediate soluble agent, halothane, and a highly soluble agent, ether. So we were able to see the effects based on solubility also of the agent that's being administered. And what we found was that a left to right shunt barely affected the speed of induction. And by the way, we judged speed of induction by the partial pressure in the arterial blood of the inhalation agent, okay? So then the predominant effect was with the right to left shunts. And altering the shunt or, offering, or altering the solubility of the agent all affected the speed of induction. And that was the way we solved the problem of what happens with speed of induction. This picture shows the effects of the inhalation induction on the arterial partial pressure of the inhalation agent. As FA, that's a fraction of the uh, arterial blood over the inspired. And it shows normal, which is the solid line, and a dashed line, which is the shunt in that patient, which is basically as a QPQS of two to one. This picture shows the effects of the three anesthetics that we mentioned, nitrous oxide, ether, and halothane, on the rate of change from the control. And as you could see, the most soluble agent had the least change, and the least soluble agent, nitrous oxide, had the most change in change from the control. And ether, the most soluble, had the least change in terms of speed of induction. And then the next slide shows the straight right to left shunt with halothane and nitrous oxide, nitrous oxide being a dashed line. It hit me one day, if we had somebody with coronary artery disease and they were having a cardiac anesthetic for repair of their coronary artery disease, we would use a high dose narcotic technique either morphine or later on fentanyl. But if that patient came in for like a hip replacement or something like that, we wouldn't use high dose narcotic, we would probably use inhalation. And the question is, if we're using inhalation for patients with coronary artery disease in that setting, why not use it in open heart surgery? So I decided to start giving inhalation agents to my adult patients with, with cardiac disease, and that started working out very well. We were able to move extubation much faster, et cetera, and the uh, immediate perioperative period was much smoother. So then I got brave enough to start playing the game out in children. And again, it was a culmination of the echo plus this clinical observation. So the first group of children we did it with was the infants who were involved with service-induced profound hypothermia, which is a way of, as you know, um, being able to make the surgical field easier for the surgeon to navigate than having all the hardware in. 
And what we did was we basically anesthetized the kids with halothane, and then when we went to service-induced profound hypothermia, we increased the halothane to vasodilate them more. Then obviously when we were ready to terminate that period and drain the blood from the body, we did that. And then the surgeon went on and did the procedure. Then we restored circulation. And then we moved to something that was very unusual. What we did was we extubated the patients on the table. Now the first thing I would have to say, friends of mine felt I did this because I didn't know how to manage mechanical ventilation in a child. And they felt that this was the way Yale was getting around the problem, just extubate everybody. But what we did was we had a very specific protocol. And we handled 22 consecutive patients in this study. The average age was 15 months with a weight of about 7 kilos. 50% were extubated in the operating room, 5% within 70 minutes of arrival in the PACU, but never had mechanical ventilation. Uh, there were minimal pulmonary complications in that group, and they underwent major procedures. That taught us a lot about the management of, ch of children and uh, extubation. And an advantage we had, which I didn't realize at the time, which was one of the most fortuitous things in the development of this strategy, was we did not bring the post-cardiac kids up to the PICU or the CT PICU. We kept them with us in a separate room off our PACU, which meant that the anesthesia team that took care of the kid in the operating room was taking care of them postoperatively and working with the surgeons and the pediatric cardiologists. So we were not having any people interfering with our management of the case. And I would say that in respect for my pediatric colleagues, but we had a goal and we couldn't have people playing around and learning in this control. So basically, it played out very, very well. And we continued to use that area for a number of years afterwards until we were forced to move by the sheer volume of what we were doing up to the picky, which is a, a, on a very different floor. And it actually changed our approach because we were more concerned about making sure the kid was stable in transport, et cetera, et cetera. So this system worked out very, very well and led to the next study, which was our big study on early extubation. Now, in that study, we did about 197 kids, both open and closed. So in other words, 140 of them had cardiopulmonary bypass. Again, difficult type of cases. And what we found was we were, again, able to extubate about 60 of them, 60% in, the, in the operating room, about 25% more in the PACU without having any uh, mechanical ventilation intervene. And then the other 25% wound up having some sort of mechanical ventilation. They had either more prolonged procedures, more difficult repairs, et cetera, et cetera. But the ability, again, to take a large population and not expose them to mechanical ventilation, I thought was very important. Because a major problem we had, I don't know whether you remember it or not, used to be uh, subglottic stenosis from the endotracheal tube. And as a matter of fact, when we would keep a kid intubated, we'd switch over to a nasal tracheal tube to prevent this pistoning effect in the trachea. So that worked out very well. And what we emphasized in that longer protocol 
was an inhalation approach, immaculate tracheal bronchial toilet. In other words, we did a lot of work in the operating room before we extubated the patient in terms of suctioning, et cetera. We gave them some treatments with a vaponephrine. Uh, then when we brought them up to the pediatric cardiovascular recovery area, we would continue tracheal toilet in a very aggressive way. Uh, and that led, I think, to our good results. So, Paul, let's, um, I'm going to take advantage of you here. You're obviously, you know, one of the most accomplished and highly respected members of the anesthesia community. Hundreds of publications, probably the most widely read series of anesthesia textbooks published. What, what sort of insights do you have over your career as regards um, conducting research and, and an academic career? I think a lot of errors are made early in people's careers because they're overwhelmed by what's going on around them, both in their department and in other departments. And the biggest problem I see is fitting your research protocol to the resources of your institution. You have to conduct research where the resources of the institution uh, can yield the, the patient population that you need. And what I see too frequently, uh, our younger faculty, our residents and fellows construct protocols where we're gonna see the patient once a year on New Year's Eve if you happen to be on call at that time. We're never gonna see the patient. So basically, it's a matter of choosing protocols that you know you're gonna have a, a patient population for. An example would be stuff that we do with coagulation because we manage coagulation all the time. So that's an easy thing to collect a lot of data on. Um, one of the issues also with it is the fact that you have to have a commitment from a couple of people. You can't do it all yourself. Even the simplest thing can get screwed up if people are not committed as part of the team to working with it. So that, that would be the second issue. The third issue is to start small. If you recall, we started off with the early extubation protocols basically by looking at a very small population of surface-induced profound hypothermia and then went on. And it was the same thing with echocardiography. We started small and then we started branching up. It was some case reports, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel very strongly that everybody has their place. And I found the place for Yale's output was not in these large, large outcome studies, uh, but in a deeper recognition of cause and effect or a deeper analysis of the issues that were brought out in the large population-based series. And that is a very important lesson because otherwise you'll be mired in not getting anything done and trying to conduct protocols. Well, Paul, thank you very much. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.